Please uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. In the Bibles provided, it's on page 1710. We're in chapter 1. Last two weeks, we looked at Philippians chapter 3, looking at uh, the year be- be- behind us, the year ahead of us, uh, quoting from the passage, looking uh, not to the things of the past, but looking forward, Paul says, he presses on and use that as something of a, a New Year's resolution to, to press into the salvation, the hope that, uh, that Jesus has won for us, and to take, to take hold of it, not by our own strength, but because, but because Christ has taken hold of us. And I, I did this last year with Colossians, and, and it, it seemed to work well. It's sort of starting, uh, starting with the end in mind, where Paul's going with these, with these letters. And, and the, the theme of Philippians is, is much more upbeat than most of Paul's letters. There's no particular theological air that he's correcting. There aren't heretics in the town who are trying to lead the people astray away from Jesus. It's It's a joyous letter, and he reminds the people to uh, rejoice and to share in his joy. Interestingly, Paul's circumstances aren't what we would consider being very joyous. He's in prison. Let's uh, let's read this this passage. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, which is our primary text for the day, but then I'm going to read just a a little bit more, verses 12 through 14, to give us some more context for um, uh, for the sermon. This is God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my joy, my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ at the day of Jesus Christ it is right for me to feel this way about you all because i hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel uh, verse 12 i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word, he tells us, stands forever. You pray with me. O Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For when they are acceptable to you, pleasing to you, they are good for us. May we hear your words, empowered by your Holy Spirit, in such a way that they impact and even change our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, the story of the harrowing escape from Japan of Carlos Gosen, the CEO, the former CEO of Nissan, who was under house arrest, has captivated the uh, U.S. people. Consistently in the most read articles of multiple papers, if you're not familiar with it, he famously had been uh, under house arrest and facing trial for over a year and decided that he wasn't going to get a fair trial in Japan, and so he concocted a plan with multiple people to smuggle him out of Japan and 
repatriate himself to where he has citizenship, I, I, I understand, in Lebanon. The escape involved a musician's box big enough for him to hide in with air holes drilled in the bottom of it, alongside of another musician's box just to add some concealment, searching through the various airports and security measures to find holes and gaps, use of a private jet to fly him to Istanbul first and then on to uh, Lebanon by another plane. The theme of prison escapes is one that kind of captures my imagination. Two of my favorite stories are uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, written by Alexander Dumas years ago, decades ago, of uh, of an escape from uh, an old uh, French prison, but also, uh, more recently, the Shawshank Redemption story of uh, um, uh, the escape of a man who was innocent and and held wrongly and and, uh, escaping prison in a similar way. If you haven't read Count of Monte Cristo, uh, to the Count of Monte Cristo, read it. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Maybe it reveals a little bit about me that I enjoy prison break stories, but I think it also reveals a bit of a heart for the biblical story because prison imprisonments and even prison breaks are a recurring part of the story that's told of the New Testament church in Acts in particular, Paul frequently was imprisoned. Twice in particular the stories are detailed, but other times alluded to. The apostles of Jesus were frequently imprisoned, and if you go back throughout the story of redemption, many people were imprisoned, both rightly at times and wrongly. The story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph finds himself in prison multiple times, oftentimes wrongly accused. Imprisonment is a theme that helps us to explain, helps us understand our condition with God. The Bible explains to us that sin is an enslaver, a captor. We are in prison to our sin. In our humanity and in the place of being uh, sinners, Against God, we have alienated ourselves from God. The picture that's drawn in the Garden of, of, of Eden with Adam and Eve is really one of self-imprisonment in many ways. After they had done the one thing God had told them not to do, to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they go in and hide themselves from God. And even the banishment from the garden is both penalty as well as protection for the people, for them. It's penalty in the sense that they don't get to live into the beautiful creation, sinless, deathless, painless creation that God had created for them in Eden. But also, it is protective in the sense that they will also not live forever in the new reality that they have in part created for themselves. One that does include death. One that does include suffering. The letter of Philippians 
is in part a letter about Paul's imprisonment. Paul explains to them right off the bat that he is in prison, but that he's not lost hope. He's in prison, but like many of us, he's able to see that the chains that matter the most aren't, aren't, often aren't the ones that we think we have on us. Or maybe even are aware of or see. Or oftentimes what feels like the most enshackling kind of thing, imprisoning kind of things, are the restrictions that God puts on our lives. The commands. Most of us are fine with the not stealing, not murdering, but digging down deeper, the not coveting and not envying, not lusting, not being angry at other people. These commands oftentimes we feel like are unfair restrictions, limiting our ability to enjoy life when, like Paul, And like the people of Philippi, we need to see that those aren't the things that enshackle us most, but rather those things that we think we want to do and that feel like they're enshackling, imprisoning kind of restrictions are not the things that imprison us, but those things themselves, when we enter into them, restrict us and imprison us. Our bondage, our bondage is not to be free to do whatever we want. Our bondage, or the freedom from our bondage isn't to be free to do whatever we want. Our bondage is that we're so caught up in these things that oftentimes do us damage and harm that we're not able to see a a better picture for our life. A more hopeful presentation, again, C.S. Lewis is so helpful in describing it as us being satisfied making mud pies in the alleyways when God's promised a vacation at the seashore. The letter of Philippians is a letter about growing into maturity. Today we're just looking at a brief introduction of the letter. It's a letter about growing into maturity. And Paul says the key to growing into maturity, twofold, two main things. One of them we've talked about over the last two weeks is in chapter two we'll look at is, is the example of Christ's humility and to the ability for us as Christians freed by God's grace to think less of ourselves so that God can use us for even greater things. So that we're not enshackled so much by the covetousness and envy that so often holds us down and keeps us pursuing dreams and hopes that are ultimately damaging to our lives and limit the ability for God to use the gifts He's given us for the purposes He's called us to. The second key, the second key to growing into maturity is to be able to look at life circumstances through new lenses, different eyes. And this is really what Paul is explaining throughout this letter to the church in Philippi, and that is you think, you think that my imprisonment 
is a defeat for the gospel. But God has given me, this is Paul, not me, and I can't say that I'm here either. Paul is saying God has given him the ability to look at any and every situation in life, any and every circumstance in life, whether in plenty or in want, he goes on to say in chapter 4, and to be content, to be satisfied. He calls this the secret of life, and he's able to view life circumstances, whether he's on a high or in a low as being something that God is using in us, not just to strengthen us and toughen us up as if we were training for some mission, but to use us in mighty ways and powerful ways for His kingdom. Tim Keller, preaching on this, this, uh, this passage through all, all of chapter 1, he explains it doesn't matter he says, he quotes, quotes Paul, it doesn't matter if I live or die. That's where Paul goes next with, uh, with chapter 1. He says, it doesn't matter if I live or die. It's not a matter of being discouraged or being in despair. Paul's not in discouragement or in despair because, because he has a definition of life that enables him to face anything. It's not the circumstances of life, but the way that he or you and I define life. In other words, what are you living for? What are we living for? Chapter 3 that we read multiple times explained the hope and placing the hope in attaining the resurrection and keeping that hope for what we were made to live into and for. And when we're hoping for that, when we're living for that more than anything else, it gives us an amazing ability to live into life and handle any and every circumstance in life with a strength that endures. It's not a question of faking it until you make it, not just enduring through the suffering, but changing the whole way we look at and see life around us. To be understand, able to understand, as Paul does in verse uh, 21 of chapter 1, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he wrestles famously through with this, this conundrum, this, this opposition, not because he's, some, he's suicidal and thinking, I just want to escape all of my circumstances, but because he's looking at his imprisonment and the very real possibility that he could be executed because of his faith, and he's facing these two possibilities that he has little or no control over. And he says, if I die, if I'm executed, it is even more glorious because I will have attained the resurrection that I'm hoping for. And if I live, it will be even better because I know I've got the resurrection to look forward to, but I will be able to live into this life to preach the gospel to others and to serve others all the more. And that's why, that's why it's so significant that Paul begins his letter by calling him and Timothy, his young apprentice, servants. Servants of Christ Jesus. That first theme I mentioned, the theme of humility, begins right at the beginning of the letter. He doesn't call himself an apostle of Christ like he does in some of the other letters. 
identifying himself. Later on, he goes through and he lists out some of his resume in chapter 3 that we've read. All the things that he had to boast about in his life past, but he begins this letter by calling himself a servant. One who has been put into service of another, in one sense enslaved, shackled, but shackled to the one whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that is Christ Jesus who equips us and goes with us throughout all of life and empowers us for the work that he's called us to do, whether it's enduring imprisonment for the sake of the gospel or working on a ship or in a hospital or in preaching the word or in teaching kids or whatever your job is. When we are servants first of Christ Jesus and not of our boss and not of our own expectations for our performance at at our job and not of the paycheck we're going to get, when we're enslaved servants of Christ Jesus, we experience what life is as ones who are called servants but also made sons and daughters. Loved deeply, by Jesus, cared for, equipped for the work he's called us to do. When we get work, we know it's meaningful. Sometimes in our jobs, we're we're caught. We think this has no usefulness at all. It's busy work. It's mundane or it's selfish. It's self-serving. It's greedy. And sometimes those things are. And as Christians, we should be able to speak into our workplace and bring light into those places. But know this, as we looked at in, recently in Proverbs and, and going forward, we'll look at the work that we've been called to do isn't all to be apostles, isn't all to be imprisoned for Christ Jesus. But the work that we've been called to do some of the time feels like an imprisonment. And know that God is calling you to that place, at least for a season. I don't know when God's going to call you away from that or to something else. But it's for a purpose. Your position, your place in life, whether it's a health issue or whether it's a, 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 a family issue or something else, those things may feel like imprisonment. But compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, again, chapter 3, those things are still things that pale in comparison. Now, I want you to notice where Paul goes with this letter right at the beginning. He calls himself that servant, and he identifies them as the saints. It's not, it's not insignificant that he would call them saints. We use that term to refer to football teams and other things vary, and sometimes even in a, in a kind of shorthand way for referring to people who think they're better than they are, a bit of holier-than-thou kind of person. But a saint in the Greek, and a saint in Paul's mind, was somebody who has been made holy. It was not an insignificant thing for a Jewish Pharisee to call other people holy. We read earlier about those disciples who weren't washing their hand and they were breaking the commandments that, uh, that had been applied in wrong ways and in, in, in heart-hardening ways. They were unholy. They weren't supposed to go anywhere near God. They were the opposite of the saints. And Paul explains to the people in Philippi that they have been made holy by God 
and they have the position of being saints, holy ones, not on their own merit, but in Christ Jesus. And that phrase is going to come up multiple times. I think it's around 28 times in the letter. The idea of being in Christ Jesus. It's a very simple phrase in the Greek, but it's very profound in its meaning. Because we are not made holy as Christians apart from being united to Christ. We don't become Christians and then do all the good things and that makes us holy, but we are constantly called holy by God because we share in Christ Jesus' holiness. He has taken our sin away from us and He has given us His righteousness. And so to be united with Christ Jesus is the only way for salvation. It's the only way to be called saints in God's eyes. And He writes a letter to the whole congregation that's in Philippi And then he also notes, not quite sure why he necessarily calls out the the overseers or the elders and the the deacons there, but it's interesting that even the elders and the deacons are given a second, the leaders of the church are given a secondary position as if to explain to them, follow Paul and Timothy's example of considering yourselves least in the kingdom, servants of Christ Jesus. He used the common introduction to the letter. Almost all of his letters use some form of this, if not this. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of the members of the Trinity, two of the three, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and extending two important concepts to us. The first is grace, and that is unmerited favor of God. Like Mary experienced when, when, when the, the, she had been found holy and righteous, but, but the angels extend to her grace and saying, God has bestowed on you favor. God extends that same introduction, welcome to us. He extends unmerited favor to us, grace to you. And then he explains what that unmerited grace means for us, and it means that we have resolved conflict with God. We have peace. We can stand down. The violence has not escalated even further, but it has been alleviated, resolved. Not like what we're facing with Iran right now where tensions are still high and not resolved, but in Christ Jesus, when we are in Christ Jesus, God has declared that we are at peace with Him, no longer at war with Him, no longer opposed to Him. We have been made holy and reconciled to Him. And that, sometimes we hear it so often, means so, seems to mean so little to us, but it's, it's the most significant thing that any of us can hear in all of our lives that God has called us His friends because He's reconciled us with Him. Where our sins had separated us from God, God has reconciled us to him and given us a peace. Now the word peace in Hebrew is a rich word and it means this whole human flourishing and, and experience of, 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 of broad peace and that, that is the hope of the resurrection that we pointed to. 
the beginning of that is this resolved conflict that enables us to be less defensive. It enables us to be less on guard. It enables us to go out and plant gardens without a fear of digging up a landmine. Let me ask you this question just as a practical form of application here. Where, I posted this on Instagram this week, sometimes I do this, but where in life do you feel the most defensive? Where, where, where in life, with, with certain people, in certain areas, with your job, performance, where, where are the places where you feel like you most need to defend yourself? Because that, that helps you identify where there are places in your life that you're not experiencing peace. There are the landmines that you're fearful you're going to dig up or step around or tiptoe around. And look, not all of these are resolvable, especially in human sense. But use some of those. I mean, try to resolve as much as you're able to resolve those, but use some of those to then help you understand where you have unresolved defensiveness before God. Where do you go to God in prayer and confession and you feel like you have to explain yourself? Where are the places that are holding you back from spiritual growth because you're fearful if God really came down on you with a judgment, you couldn't stand up? You see, it's interesting. This is where Paul goes. He, he goes next to explain the deep relationship he has with the people of Philippi. Right? They are people who have supported him financially and with prayer. They love him and he wants them to feel at ease because he is at ease and even seeing fruit from his ministry in the prison. But then in verse 7, you hear where this, this section goes. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. He has this deep abiding affection. I hope that we have that affection for one another and even more so that affection for God himself. For you all are partakers with me of grace. That grace to you extended both in my imprisonment uh, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my Witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I've lost my place. I, I, where is it? Uh, I read verse six, 7 instead of verse 6. All right. Look with me at verse 6. That's where we are. Speaking about the affection, the, the, the point of the affection was just a, a brief comment to get us to this, this other point. Verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the first part of that verse speaks to God's promise that the work that he is doing in us is not conditioned on Paul getting out of prison. I'll bet a lot of the Philippians felt like if Paul doesn't get out of prison, my faith is doomed. I'm not going to continue to grow into this maturity. I'm not going to be able to learn anymore. Our faith is not conditioned on any one particular teacher or preacher or even life circumstance or place. So if God moves us out of one place, it doesn't mean that he's not still at work. Paul is certain of this, and he wants the people to understand that. 
But, but did you notice, maybe you just read right over this and don't pay close attention to it. Did you notice that he gives a particular time when that completion will be understood and recognized? And that was at the day of Jesus Christ. At the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this reference or this phrase, Paul uses it multiple times in his letters. The day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a parallel phrase to the Old Testament phrase that's frequently used by the prophets and others that, that was the day of the Lord. It was the day when God was going to come and bring justice and rescue. The two were tied together inextricably in the Jewish mindset that God's judgment would be on those who were persecuting the, the, the Jews, the, the church of the Old Testament, the gathering of God's people, and that the rescue would be for them to be freed from their imprisonment, their oppression. The day of the Lord has these two important tied connotations of justice and rescue. And so for Jesus to pick up this language and use it for himself, and then Paul as an apostle to pick this up and refer to the day of the Lord as the day of Christ Jesus. He is, in one sense, keeping these two things tied. For God's judgment must come for humanity to experience freedom from imprisonment to sin. If God's judgment doesn't come and the sheep separated from the goats, the sin removed from his creation, then there's no other way for sin and suffering and death to be removed and the effects of the fall to be removed. But here's the most fearful thing in all of humanity for this. And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you hear that word. And if, if you don't have a sense that God's judgment is great, we should have a sense. You need to have that. We should have a sense of fear of God's judgment. Because the problem that the Pharisees had gotten themselves into was that they had convinced themselves that they didn't deserve judgment when everyone else did. And the danger we as Christians and all of us face is that we convince ourselves that we are not deserving of judgment when we know that we are. And so for most of us at some point in life, and maybe you're there, our job is to convince ourselves that we are good enough to deserve God's pleasure. To create some type of metaphorical scale where we weigh our bad deeds and our good deeds. And we need, we want to find ourselves innocent when we know deep down that we're not. I mean, we're good enough compared to that person. But what about this other person? It matters who we compare ourselves to. And when we get into that game of comparison, it's impossible. 
it's impossible to, to follow that, that first key theme that Paul goes through in his letter, and that is of humility. It is impossible for us to be humble when we are comparing ourselves with others in order to get a sense of our worth and a freedom from the knowledge that we have, even in ourselves, that we deserve God's judgment. And so what Paul is writing to the Philippian church, a church he deeply loves, and a church that in many ways is doing very well and maturing, is to encourage them to press forward into the freedom that comes when we understand that we're not good enough because of the things that we do, but we're good enough because of what Christ has done on our behalf and has given us given to us, but not just in a way that we take the gift and run, but given it to us by uniting us with Christ, that we are in Christ. And with that security and with that place, we can enter and walk into a place of humility before others that becomes a powerful witness to the world around us. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 explains that unity is the key. Christian unity is the key to witness to the watching world. And humility, humility, Paul explains to us, is the key to experiencing unity. Jesus says this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. James Boyce uses a helpful illustration. Actually, my parents told me this story when I was a kid. I remember it for some reason of the key to humility. And the key that Paul explains is that Christ didn't hold on to, grasp on to his divine rights, his divine power, but let, let that go to be born as an infant. To be constrained in some ways to a human body. To be united with that body forever. And Boyce explains, what is that, that grasping? He says, I don't even know if this is true or not. So if somebody knows that this is not true, still listen to the illustration, but, but tell me. Evidently, monkeys. Monkeys are curious creatures. When people used to go into jungles to capture monkeys, they had this trick. They would put some type of food in a jar that had a, a small opening at the lid and then got bigger. And the monkeys would come and, and, and reach into these jars that were secured somehow with their hands open. And when they'd grab the thing inside, they'd make a fist. And as they'd pull their 
hand out, the fist wouldn't fit through the top of the jar. And they weren't smart enough to let go of the thing and figure out some other way to get, they would just hold on and, and the people would come and take the monkeys captive. And he says the key to experiencing and living into this humility in the Christian life is to recognize our propensity to hold on to something that is ultimately enslaving us. But that we think is what we really want or need. And like Christ's example, letting go of that thing. Now Christ didn't have to let go of his thing for his own good, but for our sake he let go of that so that he could free us. Now, when we live into that type of humility, we can have courage and also a perspective to face life's circumstances in new ways, that we see that the bad circumstances aren't a result of our immaturity. Don't we oftentimes think that when we have something go bad in life, we think, well, I screwed up and sinned in this way, passed in life, and now I'm experiencing the consequences. But that's not always. Sometimes we are experiencing consequences. But that's not always what's really going on behind the scenes. There's a great prayer, prayer and, and, uh, and poem called The Valley of Vision. I'll just read the beginning of it. It speaks of seeing those valleys in life in a new way. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Let's pray. O Lord, our sin-sick hearts place treasure in so many wrong places. As we study this letter to the church in Philippi and hear of Paul's deep compassion, Will you help us to live into this reality, this call to humility and give us new eyes to be able to see from the valley of vision the ways that you are at work in us and through us and give us endurance and patience in love and compassion. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.